Please be seated. Let us pray. Ever-present God, we have come to hear your word. We ask that you would take the reading of these scriptures today and the words that I have written here and all the thoughts and the feelings that we may have this morning and that through these that you would speak your word into our lives. Amen. The Old Testament reading today comes from Psalm 8. O Lord, our Sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? And yet, you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And our New Testament reading today comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that this does not include the one who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him so that God may be all in all. This is the word of the Lord. So that passage I just read is the inspiration for this whole three-part series that I'm doing here. Uh, to recap just a little of what I said last week, in the centuries immediately following the ministry of Christ, 
There's a very early tradition that arises in the eastern part of the Mediterranean world, which recognized that this last verse specifically, 1 Corinthians 15:28, as well as the passage leading up to it, they recognize this to be a kind of key for unlocking the rest of Scripture. The idea that in the age to come, God will be all in all was used as a kind of interpretive lens to look through to help understand everything else. And last week, we talked about one of my theological heroes, Gregory of Nyssa, and how he used that verse about God being all in all to understand the image of God that we find in Genesis 1. And we talked about how Gregory's understanding of the image of God was able to motivate him in his public stand against slavery, which during his day was a very unique and courageous thing. Uh, Next week, we're going to be talking about the experience of beauty. That's a sermon that I'm I'm really excited to preach. We're going to be talking about how that relates to this idea that God will be all in all. Um, Today, though, we're talking about 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28 itself. And what I'd like to make more clear is how this passage in 1 Corinthians 15 could be used in the way that Gregory of Nyssa and others used it, as this sort of lens which the rest of the scripture can be viewed through. And along with that, I want to try to emphasize just how powerful and how all-encompassing is the hope that is offered to us in this passage, because the hope that is offered in this passage has been really important to me personally. Uh, you know, this passage, as I've been thinking about it this week, uh, you know, it is a passage of hope, but it also, I mean, makes it clear that in this world that we're living in today, the powers of death are, these enemies of Christ are, they're a part of it, you know, and um, as I was thinking about it this week, the questions it was raising for me, I mean, uh, it was, it was kind of, it's kind of been a challenging thing to think through because a world in which the powers of death are present, it's a world that often is not going to make a lot of sense to us. And maybe there's no context we could provide that is going to make some of the things we see in this world make sense. Um, but... I think what this passage does offer us that is so important is that hope. Uh, Really an unapologetic, just powerful hope. And that's what I want to talk about today because I think that hope is so important for orienting us uh, as we move through life. So let's just start with what is in this passage. Because for such a short passage, there's really a lot that's going on here. It begins with this idea that Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is not just something that happened to Jesus. What happened to Jesus is kind of a preview of coming attractions, right? Uh, Jesus defeating death in his resurrection is kind of a sneak peek at death's final defeat, which is forthcoming. The passage says that just as death first came into being through a human, so too the reversal of death. This power of resurrection has come into being through a human, which is Jesus Christ. And we have this statement, For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive 
in Christ. And right off the bat, we're in controversial territory here, folks. You may not think so. You may have heard this line a few times. You might not think anything scandalous is happening here, but uh, when I looked at the commentaries on this passage this week, both ancient and modern commentaries, uh, it's kind of interesting to see certain interpreters sort of bending over backwards to get this passage to not say what it seems to be saying. Uh, and to be fair, it's really quite the statement that is being made here. It's very definitive. In Adam, all die. No exceptions. If you're a human being, you're sort of included in this whether you like it or not. And then, in Christ, all will be made alive. Made alive. Again, that's not a take-it-or-leave-it sort of deal. That's something that's just happening, right? And another thing that's pretty easy to notice about this statement, as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ, is that it's symmetrical. The two halves of the statement match each other, which would certainly seem to give the impression that the group implied by the word all in the first half is the same group as the group implied by the word all in the second half, right? Uh, seems like in both cases, it's everybody. Everybody is dying in Adam and everybody is being made alive in Christ. But as I say, you know, not every interpreter uh, is willing to see this at face value. Uh, the great St. Augustine, by all accounts, uh, a great, incredible theologian, uh, very influential. St. Augustine tries at least four different times that I read this week to kind of finesse his way around the parallel grammar here. Uh, in his book, The City of God, for example, he tries to say that Paul uses the word all in both clauses because, quote, as no one dies in a natural body except in Adam, so no one is made alive again in a spiritual body except in Christ. Well, no, that's not exactly what the passage says, is it? I mean, I didn't see anything there about different kinds of bodies, did you? Uh, I'm pretty sure that comes later in the chapter. Uh, so let's try again. In, in a letter written to St. Jerome, Augustine says that Paul uses the word all twice because, quote, as all who die, die only in Adam, so all who will be made alive will not be made alive except in Christ. Uh, now this one is, maybe the wording's a little confusing, but it's, it's pretty funny. Uh, it's kind of like if I said I was going to give everyone after the service a $20 bill. And then after the service, I backpedaled and I said, well, when I said I was going to give everyone $20, what I meant was that everyone who was going to get $20 was only going to get it from me, not from anybody else, uh, but I only have $40 in my wallet. So uh, I shouldn't pick on St. Augustine too much, though. Uh, after all, I've seen a lot of modern Protestant theologians do this same kind of thing. On the one hand, they want to say that death comes to all human beings through Adam. But on the other hand, they want to say that those who are made alive is a much more select group. Maybe all of the people that God has predestined, but not anybody else. Or maybe they want to say it isn't so much that all are made alive in Christ, so much as it is that all are offered life through Christ, but of course it's really going to be a much smaller subset of people that's ultimately going to opt into that offer. Um, I don't know. All I can say is 
It would have been nice if Paul had been a little more careful with his word choice here. Uh, then we wouldn't have to keep coming in and making these kinds of corrections. Uh, I mean, as it stands, your average reader is liable to come along and think that Paul actually meant what he said. Uh, moving on, though. The next thing that we have in this passage is the explanation of three different moments, kind of three different stages. These are stages of the process of all being made alive. Paul says, as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. It's a very kind of intriguing transition between statements there. All will be made alive in Christ, but each in his own order. Now, of the three moments I listed there, at least the first two are presented as being part of this process of all being made alive. You know, first Christ is made alive, then those who belong to Christ are made alive. Now, I happen to think that the third moment of Christ handing over the kingdom to the Father is also a part of this process of all being made alive. Uh, which would kind of explain the fact that death being defeated is the last thing that happens before that. Um, and I think that I'm in good company, theologically, uh, in that belief, but you can wait until the end of the sermon to see if you agree with me, okay? Before we move on from these moments, I want to make the point that people in Paul's time thought about time as being divided into ages, uh, we may sometimes be inclined to think of time as just one continuous thing, right, that started a very long time ago and keeps going on forever, right? Uh, but Paul, uh, and indeed, so far as I've been informed, I think all the writers of the New Testament are thinking about time as a series of successive ages. Uh, the Greek word for age is ion. Uh, we kind of have that English word eon, right, that sort of mirrors that ion. And ion can also mean a lifetime or a generation. And when Paul is thinking about these three different moments, he's probably thinking about them in connection to certain ions. One of the first moment in which Christ is resurrected uh, is clearly part of this age. Uh, then we have those who belong to Christ being made alive, along with all these powers being defeated. And Paul could be thinking of this either as an age unto itself or as several ages, or possibly a transition between ages. Uh, and then, finally, when Christ hands over the kingdom to the Father, this is clearly the inauguration of a new age, a new ion, uh, final ion. Uh, so we're either dealing with three total ages here, or a bunch of ages with two bookends, or two ages with a transition in between them. And, you know, that's for uh, scholars to debate, maybe, but... Uh, I think it's just important to remember um, this thinking in terms of ages. That's going to come back into play later, so keep that in mind. So after uh, some quotations from the Psalms, the last thing that we have in this passage is a little bit of extra information about that final age, about the significance of the fact that Christ has handed over all things to the Father. Paul describes this moment as follows. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected 
to the one who put all things in subjection under him, so that God may be all in all. Which is kind of a cryptic phrase, right? It's a little mysterious. Paul doesn't exactly go out of his way to make it clear what that means. We might have expected him to say something here like, so that God may be one over all. That would have kind of followed in a straightforward way from everything that had been said before. But instead he says, so that God may be all in all. As we think about what that phrase means here, I think it may be worth taking a look at how one of the earliest interpreters of the Bible approached it. Now, Gregory of Nyssa, who we talked about last week, was born in the year 325. But the tradition of giving a central role in the interpretation of Scripture to this particular passage in 1 Corinthians goes back significantly further than that, at least to a man named Origen. Origen uh, was born around the year 185, which puts him within a century of the writing of the last books of the New Testament. Uh, Origen is often referred to as the first systematic Christian theologian. That is to say, he's the first Christian to try to take all of Scripture together and try to arrive at an overall interpretation of how we ought to read these texts together. Origen uh, was aided in this effort by some of the best philosophical understandings of his time. He was a really well-read, brilliant scholar. Um, and unfortunately, 300 years after his death, Origen's name gets dragged into a controversy that he really has nothing to deal with, uh, to do with, and a lot of his writings get destroyed. Uh, so we don't have as much from him as uh, I would certainly like to have seen. Uh, but what we know, however, is that during his own time, Origen was considered the world's foremost defender of Christian orthodoxy. They actually gave him, his peers in Christianity, they gave him the nickname Origen Adamantius, which means man of steel. Uh, you know, among nicknames you could get, this is pretty cool, right? It's kind of Superman, right? Uh, Origen was a prominent public figure during a time in history when Christians were still being persecuted by the Roman government. And indeed, Origen himself was the victim of two years of imprisonment and torture uh, when the governor of Origen City tried to get him to renounce his faith. Origen never did renounce his faith, but three or four years after being freed from prison, he died from the injuries he sustained there uh, at the age of about 75. Now, the faith that Origen refused to give up during those two long years of torment was a faith that for him was held together by this idea that in the final age, God will be all in all. In order to understand this phrase in the way that Origen understood it, we have to understand a little bit about what Origen thought about the nature of evil. Not just evil in the sense of the moral failings of human beings, but also in a more expansive sense, the evil which is embedded in the world itself. I think that Origen would include death under the category of evil. Origen certainly knew something about evil on a personal level. When he was only a teenager, his father was captured and beheaded by the Roman state. And the state also seized all of the family's property 
leaving Origen, his mother, and his eight younger siblings in abject poverty. In spite of his experience of the very real pain that evil can cause, like many theologians of the early church, uh, Origen believed that evil was something non-substantial. That isn't to say he didn't think evil was a significant force that we must face. Obviously, he, he must have known that. But Rather, to say Origen viewed evil as non-substantial is to say he understood evil to be something that exists only as a corruption of something that is good, as a kind of negative space within God's good creation. He didn't think it had an existence of its own. Quite literally, it isn't a substance, non-substantial. This isn't an idea that's unique to Origen, and in fact, many other Christians have thought about evil in this same way. And although to some people, this all might seem like a philosophical abstraction, I've certainly heard that before, and I understand that, but to Origen, this was an idea of profound spiritual importance. And it was connected to this passage in a way that gave him a tremendous hope for the future. Kind of a metaphor for understanding his view would be maybe like a crack in a drinking glass. Uh, A crack might certainly affect the functionality of the glass, and if it's severe enough, if you touched it, your hand could be cut. Um, But really, what we might say exists is the glass itself, uh, and that the crack in the glass exists only as a disruption of the way the glass is supposed to be. In other words, we don't have two things, a glass and a crack. We just have one thing, a broken glass. Now, that metaphor uses the analogy of brokenness in general to refer to the relationship between evil and good. And certainly, uh, we speak about evil in this way often, the brokenness of the world. Uh, You can also use the analogy of disorder. Uh, Theologians have spoken about things not being arranged in the way they ought to be, or kind of of misdirection, things not facing towards what they ought to be. Uh, Sometimes you hear evil spoken about as a state in which persons or things exist to the extent that they are cut off from the source of life, uh, which is meant to sustain them, in the same way that a fruit will eventually begin to rot once it's been removed from a tree. Now, none of these are perfect analogies. They all have their problems And in fact, that fruit metaphor that I just gave, the fruit being plucked from the tree, that's particularly imperfect because the truth is that no part of reality, no person can ever really be cut off from God. As the Apostle Peter affirms in his sermon in Acts 17, in God we live and move and have our being. Our being is in God, so to the extent that there's anything to us at all, At the core of ourselves, in that center, we must be connected to God, always. All of these analogies are just trying to get at the idea that reality itself is something that is good, whereas evil is actually a kind of unreality or a breakdown of reality, less full connection to reality. And this isn't a license to say in a flippant manner that evil isn't real. Uh, I have heard some people say that. That's obviously totally foolish. Right? Uh, again, as Origen knew only too well, 
evil is very real, a very painful part of our lives. So why would somebody hold this kind of view, that evil is non-substantial? Well, ancient and modern theologians who hold this view see this as an inevitable conclusion of certain aspects of Christian belief. As Christians, we believe that evil is not of God. As 1 John 1.15 puts it, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And we also believe that God is the one creator of all that exists. There is no creation other than what God creates. But if we really believe those two things, that evil is not of God, and yet everything that exists is of God, you know, that certainly raises a question about the status of evil. I was sort of poking some fun at St. Augustine earlier. St. Augustine in his early life was a Manichaean. Manichaeism was an ancient religion that was dualistic. They believed that good and evil were both equally fundamental forces at work in the universe. Manichaeans looked forward to a time when good and evil would finally be separated from one another rather than being mixed together. That's kind of what they saw was the problem, was that these were mixed together. But they believed that both always had existed and always would continue to exist. And that sort of dualism was the only way that the young Augustine knew how to interpret the way around, world around him. You know, he saw good and evil, so he thought, well, both of these have to be fundamental, right? Um, but when Augustine writes later in his life about his conversion to Christianity, he cites this idea of the non-substantiality of evil as being pivotal for his new understanding. The idea that evil is not a thing unto itself, uh, but rather it is the brokenness of a good creation. I'm sorry if it seemed like that was a long excursus on the non-substantiality of evil, but I think when we're now equipped to understand origin and Gregory of Nyssa's answer to this question of what it means that God will be all in all. And I think their answer is that Jesus Christ offers us something much better than a dualistic promise of a mere final separation between good and evil, uh, between life and death. If God is truly to fill all things fully so that God's goodness and beauty shine through all of creation, well, there simply isn't any room in that picture where evil can be. There isn't any negative space anymore. We can now see that the promise in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ will destroy every authority and ruler and power, and that all his enemies will be put under his feet, and all things subjected to him, the death itself will finally be destroyed. All of these things are, in fact, a promise of healing. After all, what is it to destroy brokenness except to mend what is broken? What does it mean for a world to be subjected to Christ, a world of people facing in all the wrong directions, unless it means that the world will be finally turned towards Christ, Christ who can be seen in the faces of our neighbors. And of course, we know that despite the language of destruction of enemies, whatever is being talked about with this language of subjection of all things and destruction of enemies, you know, it can't be fundamentally something violent, because at the end of the passage, says that the Son himself 
will be subjected to the Father. That's kind of the end of this process. Origen says, quote, The destruction of the last enemy must be understood in this way. Not that its substance, which was made by God, shall perish, but that the hostile purpose and will, which proceeded not from God but from itself, will come to an end. It will be destroyed, therefore, not in the sense of ceasing to exist, but of being no longer an enemy and no longer death. End quote. With Origen's help here, we can see that the process of the destruction of Christ's enemies and the subjection of all things to him is fundamentally a process of Christ, who is the way and the truth and the life, filling up all things with himself until no vestige of death remains. Those of you who were here last week may remember that I opened that sermon talking about the beautiful image from the book of Revelation of the heavenly city of the New Jerusalem descended to earth. The text says that although nothing unclean enters the city, nonetheless the gates of that city are never closed, and standing over the river which flows down the main street of that city is the tree of life, and the leaves of that tree are said to be for the healing of the nations, the nations being outside the city. Um, and as I said last week, I think maybe the intended visual here is that these healing leaves drop down into this river, which carries them out of the city uh, through the open gates and into the world. And I think that's a beautiful image because although on the one hand there is separation, on the other hand there is this clear dynamic of welcoming, of restoration, and reconciliation. I want us to notice, though, that 1 Corinthians 15.28 takes us even beyond an image like that. If God is all in all, well, the scope of that is infinite. If the light of God is finally to shine not just from one place, but through all things, then this dynamic of inside and outside doesn't really work anymore. Now, I think this particular image in Revelation is kind of already pointing past itself, right? The healing of the nations uh, kind of implies a time when the nations will be healed, unless we think that the leaves of the tree of life aren't going to be effective, right? Um, but I think we can start to see here why Origen and Gregory and others saw 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28 as being this powerful key or lens for interpreting Scripture. They recognize that this passage uh, allows us to organize a lot of the images and the declarations that we find in other parts of the Bible. In particular, in Scripture, we often see an apparent conflict between, on the one hand, uh, passages that seem to promise salvation for all people, and on the other hand, passages which speak about judgment and punishment in ways that seem to be final. My time is certainly too limited to go through all of these but the strategy that Origen and Gregory adopted to fit all these passages together was to think about them in terms of those moments we were talking about earlier, those ions and ages with which those moments were associated. When Origen and Gregory came to statements like the one we find in Matthew 25 at the end of the chapter, which in English speaks about a division between those who receive eternal punishment on the one hand and those who receive eternal life, 
Well, Origen and Gregory are reading these passages as native speakers of the original Greek. And they knew that that word that we translate as eternal is really the word ionios. And ionios is just the adjective form of the word ion, age. And because of this, the meaning of the word ionios is really a lot more expansive and flexible than the meaning of our word eternal. We don't really have an English word that is the adjective of the word age. I guess that would be a word like agic or ageful uh, or ageley or something like that. Um, but Origen and Gregory that knew that this kind of word, they knew it could mean simply lasting for an age or it could refer to the end of an age. And thus it was often a word which referred to a limited period of time, not an everlasting one. You can see that in a lot of the ways it gets used in other places. And when they came to images like that of the lake of fire in the book of Revelation, Origen and Gregory understood this against the background of many passages in the prophets and in 1 Peter, which speak of the fire of God as a refiner's fire that separates out the impurities from gold. That was certainly how Gregory understood the kind of paradoxical image of the lake of fire as a second death into which death itself is thrown. He didn't think that was literally just the new death swallowing up the old death like a baton pass, right? Uh, he seemed to think there was something else going on here because he knew that when God was finally all in all, there would be no room for death of any kind. Origen and Gregory also looked to 1 Corinthians 3, which says that on the day of judgment, the work that each person builds upon the foundation of Jesus Christ will be tested by fire. And as Paul says there, the work of some will survive and the work of others will be burned away. Yet even though their work is burned away, uh, they themselves will be saved. Yet their salvation will be like an escape through fire. And although certainly you could say Paul is talking about a particular kind of person in that passage, a particular kind of situation, Origen and Gregory took this as yet another indication that scriptural imagery of flames and even destruction could be understood in this, terms of this process of refinement. They knew that healing and restoration can be a painful process. Uh, and it might even be a long one. Right? We don't know how many ages come in the middle there. Is that a transition between ages? Is that one age? They don't know. But they did know that the work of Christ would not be over until that last moment, that final age, when finally there is no evil left to be healed, when finally all divisions have been removed. I think in the sort of centuries since Origen and Gregory, uh, you know, maybe it's become traditional, especially in the Western church, maybe church generally, to take these statements that sort of promise salvation for all. And we take those and we maybe assume that they are hyperbolic or that they are kind of really more limited in scope than the context would seem to imply. We think that there's something going on that would limit those. And then when we see an image of final destruction uh, or punishment, uh, we kind of take that to be the last word. But I think what Gregory and Origen are doing is flipping that on its head. 
and you could say maybe they're not really flipping it since Origen was the first systematic theologian, so everybody else is maybe flipping it, but you know, that's, uh, that's here, neither here nor there. Um, but they're understanding the message of Scripture in terms of those three moments. And ultimately, to me, you know, that, that has been such an important message of hope uh, in kind of my own spiritual journey. Um, now, ultimately, as Paul indicates, all of this goes back to that first of the three moments. When we look to Jesus Christ, when we look to his resurrection, we can see an assurance from our Heavenly Father about where this is all heading. We can see the resurrection pointing us forward to the strongest possible hope that God will be all in all. That's where we're heading. 